Well, church, as you know, we are, um, we had just begun a series in the book of Daniel before the Christmas Advent season, and although I am dying, dying to get back to Daniel, with many people gone, as a favor to them, I am going to wait till they return to resume the series, and and plus, I thought it would be so fitting to end the last Sunday of 2019, the end of our year, with a reflection on the gargantuan vision of the glory of God as a way to set the trajectory for the new year. If you are with us for the very first time, we just want to welcome you, or if it's the near the first time, we welcome you to Christ Community. There are lots of options in the DFW area, and the fact that you're here, we count it as a privilege to serve you and minister to you in any way that we can. So please do not hesitate to talk to me um, or one of the elders if, uh, uh, if you have any uh, questions for us. Elders who are here, if you could raise your hand so that people could identify you. Um, we want to serve you, help you in any way we can. Christ Community Bible Church, we exist to do three things, to prize, to portray, and to proclaim the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. This is a church that exists to exalt Christ and to put him on display and to make his name known in the world. The short way of saying our mission statement is, is that we uh, exist to treasure Christ and to trust Christ. Trusting Christ for the impossible, treasuring him as our deepest delight. So it is good to be with you this morning. Well, I want to begin by saying that the path of the Christian life is not only lonely, is dangerous. It's true, and, and you need to hear that again because you need to feel that. The path of the Christian life, and in particular, the path of gospel proclamation, sharing the gospel, is not only a lonely path, it is an impossible path. In other words, if your mission in life, or at least part of your mission, is to proclaim the life-giving gospel to perishing people, and it is, then you need to know that that mission is both lonely and it is impossible. And there are several reasons for that, not the least of which is that as those who have been redeemed and rescued by Jesus Christ, we are grossly outnumbered in the world. It's a lonely and impossible path because there is ever-increasing hostility and intolerance to Christ and the gospel. It's lonely and impossible because alienation, persecution, and even martyrdom for some is not merely a possibility. It is a reality. The path of gospel proclamation is both lonely and impossible because there are hostile, resistant, aggressive nations to which we are called to send missionaries and to which some of you are called to go and they don't want you to come and they will kill you if you do. You see, if you belong to Jesus Christ, this, this is what you've signed up for. So therefore, the path of gospel proclamation is both lonely and it is impossible. And what that does is raise the question, doesn't it? If that's true, if that's true that the path of Christianity and the path of gospel proclamation is lonely and impossible and it is, the question becomes, okay, well, what then do we need from God to help us do that? 
What do we need from God to help us walk down the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation? What do you need from God to do the lonely, to do the impossible of being an ambassador and an emissary of Jesus Christ in a world that would much rather prefer to keep you silent? And you see, that is exactly the question that Isaiah answers for us in our text this morning. And you see, what we're going to find out is that what we need to sustain our souls, what we need in our lives to walk down the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation is a jarring vision of the raw, unfiltered majesty of God who has no rivals and who has no limits. What needs to happen to you as a spiritual trauma to the soul because of the glory that you see in the text. What you need to sustain you is a soul-paralyzing glimpse of the majesty of God from the pages of Scripture. And we know this is true because Isaiah was also called to walk this lonely and impossible path. He was, like us, called to be a sheep in the midst of wolves, And so God knew that what he needed to sustain him was nothing less than to be exhilarated by the soul-thrilling majesty of God himself, nothing less than God himself would do. Because here's the thing, if if Isaiah was going to preach to kings who didn't give a rip about God, if he was going to preach to a lukewarm people who had been floating in a pool of apathy for decades, if he was going to preach a message that nobody wanted to hear, then what he needed to sustain him was a reminder that the God about whom he preached was matchless and supreme and the throne upon which he sat was sovereign and unshakable. It's exactly what he needed and God gave it to him. And you see, if you here in this room, if you name the name of Christ, you just need to know you are also called to walk the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation as emissaries and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And again, I need to warn you, that's a lonely path. That's an impossible path. And so that means that what Isaiah needed to walk down that path is exactly what you need to walk down that path. And I'll just have you know that there are some texts in the Bible that have the potential to leave you speechless and overwhelmed. There's some passages in the Bible that are like earthquakes that leave gracious devastation in the human soul. There's some passages in the Bible that make you feel like little ants at the foot of Mount Everest, just gaping up at the towering majesty that lies before you. And this morning, this is one of those texts you have been warned. And this morning, I know that there are several, several kinds of people in this room. And all sorts of things face you, all sorts of pressures and difficulties and challenges and temptations. And I just want you to know that for every single one of the things, the the manifold things that you all have to face, I just want you to know that God himself is the cure. See, in any congregation, in every congregation, there are at least five different kinds of people. And every single one of you fit in one of these five Categories. You see, in every congregation, there are people who desire to grow. They desire to grow. They, they long for that next stage of spiritual maturity in their lives. 
In every congregation, there are people who are discouraged, longing for encouragement, longing for joy, looking for anything to hold on to to give them hope. Other people are distracted, distracted, charmed, and enchanted by the counterfeit pleasures of the world. Other people in any congregation, they are drifting, drifting slowly and maybe even imperceptibly drifting away from Christ into the cold ocean of apostasy. And other people, they're already dead, spiritually dead, blind, dead, damned, and helpless. And you see, my point is, is that no matter where you are, no matter what the issue is, God himself is the answer. At the end of the day, no matter where you are spiritually, what you need is a gargantuan vision of the glory of God. And that's exactly what Isaiah gives. And so I want you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, and I'll read the entirety of the chapter. Isaiah declares, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Verse 2, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord, Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people who are unclean of lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of Yahweh saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. And he said, okay, go, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. And I said, Lord, how long? How long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. Then the Lord has removed men far away, and he has forsaken places are, are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be, despite the devastation, there will still be a tenth portion in the land, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Jarring, incredible, clobbering text of Scripture. Let's go to the Lord together. 
Oh Lord, this is one of those texts that you could just read and it does something to us. It makes an impact upon us. What we see here in the text, Lord, is massive and staggering and already we can see, Lord, that our thoughts about you are much too small. We can see already, Lord, that our ponderings, that our thoughts about who you are are, are too dwarf-like. They're too little. They're not worthy of you, Lord. People are big in our lives. You are small, and we confess that. Oh, Lord, we confess that you are, as we see from this text, you are eternal. You are sovereign. You are supreme. You are matchless. You are glorious. You are holy. And even if we didn't declare that, Lord, it would not cease to be true. And so, Lord, I pray right now that you would meet with this people. You would meet with this people in this one church, in one city, in one state, in one part of the country, in one continent, in one planet, in one corner of the solar system. And yet what we're doing here is of massive, even eternal significance. Oh, I beg you, Christ, that you would meet with your people this morning. That you would minister to them. That you would manifest yourself to them. That you would in a good way, unravel their lives and help them see you for the supremely valuable treasure that you are. Lord, many needs in this congregation, small though it may be, there's struggles with sin and temptation, there's discouragement, there's feelings of hopelessness, maybe despair, maybe depression, Lord, and even worse, people drifting, not interested in you, and I pray that you would intervene in their lives, that you would minister to their souls through your word. Oh Lord, and we are surrounded by lost people. Surrounded in this area, Lord, 8.5 million people, millions of them do not know you, and many of them think that they do. Oh Lord, I pray for gracious courage like a lion to proclaim you to them. Oh, Lord, I pray that this church, I plead with you that this church would be an epicenter for global co great commission activity. That this church, oh, Lord, could be a global outpost in a world of despair. Oh, Lord, that this church here would be, would be a launch site for global ministry. And, Lord, it begins right here on Sunday morning us encountering you, the living God, through your word. So I pray that you would meet with us this morning and minister to us in a powerful and lasting way. And it's in Christ's matchless name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you have notes, here's where we're going. This morning, I want you to see from the text I just read six glimpses of the king. And since I like adjectives, six devastating glimpses of the king designed to strengthen you for the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation. That's where we're going. Six glimpses of the king designed to strengthen you for the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation. And so here we go. Number one, Yahweh is eternal. Yahweh is eternal. 
See, one of the things that makes Isaiah chapter 6 so intriguing and, and even irresistible is that chapter 6 seems chronologically out of place. It seems like Isaiah waits five chapters and then goes back in time and describes when God initially called him to be a prophet. But you see, that's not actually what he's doing. You see, chapter 6 is very much profoundly chronological. You see, Isaiah had already been a prophet for some time, and so what we actually see here now is not his, not his original installation as a prophet, but his reinstallation. What we see here are not his original marching orders, but his new marching orders as a prophet for Yahweh. And you have to understand that this new phase, this new shift in his ministry would include a very disturbing kind of shift, not the least of which would be an increasingly hostile and defiant congregation that profoundly did not want to hear what he had to preach. He was about to encounter a ministry in which there would only be opposition, only be rejection, only be resistance, only be hostility. Which means this new shift in his ministry, it was going to be lonely and it was going to be impossible. You see, on the surface, this seemed like a lost cause. This seemed like a suicide mission. And yet, what God knew he needed to sustain him for a ministry like that was nothing less than a gargantuan soul, paralyzing vision of the glory of God. And that's what God gave him when we begin to see it in verse 1. Look at the text. Isaiah begins, In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord. I need to feel this. These are heartbreaking words for Judah in the 8th century. And the reason for that is because the, the death of King Uzziah meant the death of hope, the death of stability, the death of a legacy, the death of a dynasty. I mean, Uzziah wasn't a great king by any stretch of the imagination, but he was about the only good thing happening in a country that was an absolute disaster. And yet he died because all good men must die and all men will die. From dust man was made, and to dust he must return. But I want you to notice the jolting contrast in the text. Look very carefully. It's subtle, but it is staggering. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, here it is, I saw the Lord. Did you notice in the same year that the king died, Isaiah saw the Lord. The king is dead but the Lord lives on. Uzziah the king is finished. He is extinct. He is over. But the Lord, the eternal one, the everlasting one, the one who never had a beginning, he is invincibly and indestructibly alive. And there never was a time when he was not. He is self-existent self-sustaining, self-sufficient. He was the living God infinite centuries before he created anything. He was the living God when ancient Egypt laid the first brick for the pyramids. He was the living God when Socrates drank his poison. He was the living God when the first shot of the Civil War was fired. He was the living God in 1966 when Thomas Altizer pronounced him dead and Time Magazine had the audacity to put it on the cover. 
He was the living God when 747s being flown by, by terrorists were flown into buildings killing thousands and he will be the living God 10 trillion ages from now when all the puny pot shots against his reality will have sunk into oblivion like BBs at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, Isaiah saw the Lord. They have to understand there is not one king or president alive today who will still be alive in 50 years' time. The turnover rate in world leadership is 100%. In a brief 110 years, this planet will be repopulated by a brand new crop of people by 10 billion brand new people and all seven or whatever it is, billion of us alive today will have vanished off the planet just like Uzziah, but not God. He never had a beginning and he remains forever and he is invincibly and indestructibly alive. And so my question for you this morning is, do you see the beauty and the relevance of the eternality of God? Do you love the eternality of God? Do you contemplate the eternality of God? Do, do, do you see the significance of the eternality of God in a time like this with a nation obsessed with politics, with a, with a nation gripped by presidential candidates? Do you see the eternality of God as unbelievably and, and shockingly significant? You see, the point is the stability and the safety and the security for which we all long is not found in a man, but in the God who never had a beginning. Second glimpse of the king, number two. Yahweh is sovereign. Yahweh is sovereign. Look again at verse one. In the year of the death of the king Uzziah, I saw the Lord, here it is, sitting on a throne which was lofty and exalted. Isn't it interesting to you that no vision of heaven has ever caught a glimpse of God plowing a field or mowing a lawn or filling out a report or loading a truck or shining shoes? Isn't that interesting to you? You see, the point is heaven is not coming apart at the seams. Heaven is not held together by manual labor. God is never frantically sketching out new blueprints trying to come up with plan B. No, what he does is he sits and he sits on a throne. And normally city, sitting is associated with paperwork or socializing or laziness or TV watching or sermon listening. But for Yahweh to sit, he's not being idle or passive. No, he is performing the most spectacular activity in the universe because he sits and he sits on a throne ruling every detail with absolute undisputed dominion. And of course, we have to ask the question, don't we? What does it mean that God is sovereign? What is the sovereignty of God? I'll tell you what it is. The sovereignty of God is his infinite inexhaustible power to do everything he predestined before time began. For God to be sovereign means that he does whatever he pleases apart from any constraint originating outside of his own will. You have to understand there is but one being in the universe who has absolute free will to do whatever he pleases and it is the God of Isaiah chapter 6. 
Psalm 115, verse 3, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And you notice, you notice that he sits on a throne, which means he rules the universe, and it is his right to rule the universe, and he does so with absolute ease. You see, we do not give God authority over our lives. He has it, whether you know it or you like it or not. Proverbs 16.9, the mind of man plans his way, but Yahweh directs his steps. You see, being sovereign, God controls the hurricane winds that devastate entire cities and the fragile breeze that blows the fragile leaves in the parking lot. The falling of an avalanche and the falling of the apple from a tree are equally under his dominion. The path of bullets and the path of lightning bolts equally do his bidding. He's sovereign over the stock market and over every roll of the dice in Las Vegas. He is sovereign over nations and kings and rulers and over flowers that bloom in the desert that no one will ever see or smell except God. You have to understand there is not one square inch in all the universe where God does not say, this is mine and I rule it and I am sovereign over it. And you notice that the the throne, look at the text, the throne is sitting on an, it's lofty and exalted. Picture it if you can. The throne sits at the top of an enormous series of steps. It is massive and staggering and it towers over everything else in the palace, which is a reminder to us that it impresses more deeply upon us his sovereignty over everything. And so my question for you is, do you love the sovereignty of God? Do you love that? Not just for its intellectual appeal, but the question is, do you see it as a means of survival? Do you see that the deepest foundation, that this, that the sovereignty of God is the deepest foundation for stability in your lives? That it is the deepest foundation for security in your lives? That is the deepest foundation for safety in your lives. You see, we will never, ever, ever find ultimate satisfaction in our circumstances, but only in the God who is sovereign over our circumstances. Number three, Yahweh is supreme. Yahweh is supreme. Look at what Isaiah describes at the end of verse one. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne which was lofty and exalted. Here it is. And his robes were filling the palace. Now, I don't know if you feel this or not, but what Isaiah is allowed to see here is both frightening and bizarre. Isaiah is standing at the raw edge of terror and as far as he can see in this massive palace, the royal robes of Yahweh fill every square inch of the temple. The floor is completely covered by his kingly robes, which means there's no room for anyone else to stand, but only to linger terrified at a distance. And the question is, what is this? What what does it mean for the kingly robes to fill the temple? Well, you've seen them, haven't you? Brides on their wedding day. And the long train that follows after their gowns, it follows after them, it covers the steps behind them. And you, you remember what that's designed to portray, right? Radiance, 
majesty, beauty, splendor, magnificence. And yet, what would the meaning be if that train filled the entire auditorium and it covered the seats and it covered the aisles and it covered the entire stage, leaving no room for anyone else to stand? What would the meaning be? It's easy to see, isn't it? It would very simply mean she is the most important person in the room. And that is exactly what this means here. God is the most important person in the universe forever. He is a God of absolute supremacy over everything. He is matchless and unrivaled and incomparable. He is the gravitational center of everything. He is the exhilarating epicenter of reality. In the theater of God, he is the star of the show on center stage and everybody else is a minor player in the fringes of the play. He is supreme. You see, this is a God who will not be trifled with. This is a God who will not be mocked. This is a God who will not negotiate with terrorists. This is a God who will not forever allow his infinite worth and beauty to be minimized and belittled. No, the all-filling robes of Yahweh have but one message to the readers of the text. God is absolutely supreme and incomparable and exalted over everything, which makes me want to ask you, do you love the supremacy of God? What I mean is, do you love the fact that everything God does is carefully calculated to put his infinite worth on display? Do you see that all the ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction for which we hunger is not found in having a big deal made about us, but in us being graciously allowed to make a big deal about him forever? Because counterintuitive though that may be, That is the deepest secret to our happiness forever, that we exist for the glory of another. The fourth glimpse of the king, number four. Yahweh is revered. Yahweh is revered, and and somehow, as if it were possible, the scene becomes even more unsettling. Look at verse two. There's these creatures called seraphim, And it literally says in the Hebrew that they were standing above him, each having six wings. With two, they covered their face, and with two, they covered their feet, and with two, they flew. We see here that God is not alone. There are others with him at his kingly throne, and they are called seraphim. And I think it's obvious that what we're dealing with here are unusual, dangerous, and even terrifying angelic beings who are given the privilege of serving at the throne of Yahweh. And literally the word seraphim means, get this, burning ones. They are on fire. Lightning, perhaps, protrudes out of their bodies. They're fiery 
and dazzling and even blinding in appearance. These are not cute, chubby babies with wings. And we know that because one of, one of them speaks in verse four, the very foundations of the temple are shaken. Rather, you would do better to think of these as a squadron of F-A-18 fighter jets cracking the sound barrier before the arrival of the president. They are dangerous and they are majestic because there are no puny or silly creatures in heaven, only magnificent ones. And we see that their job, their, their role and responsibility is to worship. To worship Yahweh and revere him. And look how Isaiah describes him. These, these creatures, seraphim, were standing above him, each having six wings. More terrifying than any horror film that has ever been made, these creatures on fire have six wings. And with two of those wings, they cover their face, not out of shame or guilt, but because they cannot look fully at the soul-thrilling beauty of God. To look fully upon him would destroy them so they can't help but shield their eyes. And with two of those wings, they cover their feet, which doesn't imply uh, uh, guilt or, or shame, but what it does imply is humility and unworthiness. They don't feel like they know that they can't look fully at God's beauty and they cover their feet to, to keep God from their contamination. And finally, Isaiah says that with two of the wings, the seraphim, what do they do? They fly, they fly and they hover ready for service, ready for action, ready to be told what to do. They're always in striking position, ready to do the bidding of the king. And what's really interesting is that so many precious, valuable lessons are learned in life from beholding the seraphim. Did you know that? So many lessons for us. The worship, the exhilaration, the humility, the feelings of unworthiness, the unwillingness to do anything in his sight that would profane his glory. You have to understand, seeing God like the seraphim see God is literally the secret to our sanctification. The more you can be gripped by who God is, the more you will be liberated by the sins that entangle you. Strive to see the living God like the seraphim see the living God, matchless and unrivaled and beautiful and terrible and dreadful and glorious and irresistible. Which brings us to the fifth glimpse of God, and this one's the most devastating of all, number five, Yahweh is holy. Yahweh is holy. These seraphim, these burning ones, they have wings and they have mouths. Wings to serve and do the bidding of the king and mouths to proclaim his worth and value. And we see that what they declare around the throne here is one of the most jaw-dropping declarations about God ever made in the pages of scripture. And look at what they say, if you dare. This one called out to this one. They call back and forth and they say, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. All of the earth is full of his glory. 
what the seraphim say and what they have said since they were created and according to Revelation 4.8, what they do say even as we speak is that Yahweh is holy. The question is, do you know what the holiness of God is? Have you encountered it? Have you been devastated by it? Has the holiness of God gripped your soul? Do you know what it means for God to be holy? Because what it does not mean merely is that God is moral. This isn't just God's ethical purity. It isn't just that he's sinless, although it includes that. It's not only that. Rather, the holiness of God lies deep thousands and thousands of miles beneath the surface of man's feeble comprehension, and yet that's exactly where we're going. You see, for God to be holy, kadosh in the Hebrew, get this now, it has the idea of that which is separate, that which is distinct, that which is set apart and different. You see, for God to be holy means that he is transcendent, he is incomparable, he is unrivaled, matchless, and unequaled. The holiness of God, you understand, is his otherness. It's his uncategorizability. He can't be categorized or compared to anything. For God to be holy means there isn't some chain of command or some continuum of beings where God is the highest in a descending order of beings. No, the very Godness of God separates him from everything that is not God. He's not holy because he keeps the rules. He's holy because he wrote the rules. His very character defines the rules. Bottom line, the holiness of God means that there is God and then there's everybody else. There is God and there is no one like him. And a few years ago, I read this incredible novel to my girls called The Never-Ending Story. It's this fiction kind of fantasy book that takes place in another universe where there's this boy named Atreyu who's sent on this dangerous, life-threatening quest to save the, the princess of the land. And along the way, Atreyu encounters all sorts of different things. And in this particular scene, he encounters these two creatures. They're beautiful and terrifying. And, and the description of these creatures is a little bit, and I stress, a little bit like what it means for God to be holy. Listen carefully. Atreyu had been through a good deal in his great quest. He had seen beautiful things. He had seen terrifying things. But up until now, he had not known that one and the same creature can be both. That beauty can be terrifying. That terror can be beautiful. The two monsters were bathed in moonlight and as Atreyu approached them, they seemed to grow beyond measure. Their heads even seemed to touch the moon. It was as if these beings did not merely exist in the way marble exists, for instance, but for that very reason, they seemed more real than anything made of stone. Fear gripped Atreyu. Fear, not so much of the danger that threatened him, but fear as of something above and beyond his own self. 
fear of the transcendent, fear of the unknown. No, what made his steps heavier and heavier as he approached closer until he felt as though he were made of cold gray lead. Here it is, was fear of the unfathomable and fear of something intolerably vast. That's the holiness of God. That right there is the holiness of God. The unfathomable. Something intolerably vast. Something so transcendent that it cannot be explained. Something so majestic that it cannot be compared. And you notice that out of the mouths of the seraphim, notice what they say. The threefold declaration that God is kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. He is holy, holy, holy. What is this? All this is is Hebrew mathematics. It's holiness raised to the third power. The point is the calculator of your minds cannot comprehend the exponential holiness of God. You will never solve God. You will never figure him out. You will never get to the bottom of him. You will never reach the top of the ladder of who he is. He is too much for us. He is separate and profoundly, infinitely different. Listen to the way Job wrestles with this. Job, as you know, is surrounded by some sorry comforters for friends, but all along the way, they have some pretty profound insights about who God is. And what Job describes in the passage I'm about to read to you perfectly articulates and displays the holiness of God. You ready? Here it is. Sort of accusing his friends. Can you discover the depths of God, he asks. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? They are as deep as Sheol. What do you know? (sighs) That's the holiness of God right there. And I know you see the relevance of the holiness of God for your lives. I know you do. And I know that you can tell that holiness doesn't merely mean that you are moral people. But what it does mean to be holy, although it's more than being moral, you need to understand that at the end of the day, that to be holy at the very least means that you are different. Different from the world. Different from your coworkers. Different from your peers. Different from the culture maybe even different from your own family, people should look at you like you are an alien from another planet. See, to be holy means that your thoughts and your feelings and your words and your actions are brought into conformity to the infinite worth and God that who you are reflects and displays who God is. And if that feels impossible to do, it is impossible. And so if you want holiness in your life, two things have to happen to you. Number one, you must contemplate the sheer raw holiness of God from the Bible until it grips you. That's what you have to do. You have to understand that to see God is to be changed by God. You must daily open to the sacred text of Scripture and you must ponder the fact that God is unrivaled and matchless and incomparable and uncategorizable. Don't you see the failure in our holiness is because our view of God isn't 
grand enough. It's not captivating enough. It's not compelling enough. It's not beautiful enough. It's not satisfying enough. Oh, strive to see God like the seraphim and you will begin to be sanctified. Number two, to be authentically holy, you must grab a hold of the power of Jesus Christ. You see, there's no such thing as authentic life change and transformation apart from what Christ accomplished. I mean, you, you know that, but we need to hear that every single day, that, that the life change that we long to see produced in our lives does not come from our gritting our teeth and, and clenching our fists and one's own moral resolve. At the end of the day, the power that produces authentic life change and transformation is what the death of Christ accomplished because what he purchased was not just forgiveness for the sins of the past, but all the power you need to put sin and temptation to death. John 15 verses five, 4 and 5 is literally the answer to all of our battles and wrestles with sin. We must abide in Jesus Christ. Then we will be holy. And that brings us to our last glimpse of the king, number six. Yahweh is glorious. Yahweh is glorious. There are more lyrics to the song of the seraphim, and we see them in verse three. They declare to one another, holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. Here it is. All the earth is full of his glory. You see, what the seraphim sang about, what they have declared the ages since their creation is that God is glorious. And so the question is, what is the glory of God? Well, what is the glory of God and what does it mean for the earth to be filled with the glory of God? And we talk about the glory of God all the time. At least I hope we do. Because the glory of God, I'll just have you know, is literally the most important reality in the universe. But I fear I fear for Christians, I fear for you that, that the all-consuming significance of what the glory of God means all too easily slips through the, the cracks of our hearts and becomes nothing but a mere cliche and a platitude. And so we need to get to the bottom of what the glory of God is. What is it? Well, the word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod. And the word literally has the idea of that which is heavy, that which is weighty, lead is heavy, lead is weighty. But you see, when you apply the term to a person, it has the idea of a person of gravity, a person of dignity, a person who is impressive, a person of significance. And when you apply that term to God, it becomes a way to describe his infinite worth and weight and gravity and significance and beauty. In other words... Glory is like a divine math equation where you add up the full number of God's perfections and attributes and excellencies in a math equation and the number at the bottom of the equation is an infinite value. And so the best way that scripture has to describe the infinite worth and value of God is to simply say the glory of God. It is literally a shorthand summary way of describing in one phrase the matchless worth and unparalleled significance of the God God of the universe. He is glorious. And 
it's interesting to me that, that, that the seraphim say that all of the earth is full of his glory because they don't mean in the future, they mean right now. As God reigns and rules and guides and governs, he displays his glory as he works invisibly and imperceptibly to us oftentimes in the world. His glory is on full display in the heavenly realm. His glory uh, is, is displayed out of him and it resounds back to him and all the seraphim can say is that all of the earth is full of his glory. We need these lenses. We need the lenses of the seraphim to see that in everything God is at work. In every trial, every challenge, every difficulty, God is at work in his glory. Even if we can't see it now, is being displayed. And as if somehow possible, the scene becomes even more terrifying. Isaiah, who's been this transfixed spectator, trembling in the corner, all of a sudden becomes painfully aware of his surroundings. Look at verse four. And the pillars of the thresholds trembled because of the one who called and the house was filling with smoke. What is so profound to me is that this is not the voice of God, this is the voice of the seraphim. As the seraphim call out to one another, the tectonic plates of heaven are shaken and the palace is being rocked to its very foundation. The very infrastructure and beams and foundation of this pastel are being shaken. As the, as the seraphim crack the sound barriers, they call out. And, and the thing is, if this is the voice of a created being, what is the voice of the one who sits on the throne? Entire universes are created when he speaks. And look at the end of verse four. It says that the house was filling with smoke. Walls trembling, dust falling, ground shaking. Isaiah at the edge of this palace, watching this massive towering series of steps with the throne on top of these blinding, lightning covered beings on fire, declaring to one another the, the holiness of God and smoke beginning to fill the palace. This wasn't some cheap thrill special effect using a fog machine. No, this was, this was yet another reminder that God is someone to dread. You don't pull lion's tails and you don't trifle with the living God. I see smoke as a signal of danger, of warning, of terror. When there's smoke, you immediately consider your own safety and what this is is yet another manifestation of God's unapproachable majesty. You see, the message here is God is good, but he is not safe. God is kind, but he is not tame. He is a father, absolutely he is but he is not to be trifled with. And he is a delight, absolutely. But he is also irresistibly dangerous. And these are the six glimpses of the king. And so the question arises then in the last few moments, the question arises, okay, how does that, how does all of that strengthen us for the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation? because that was the ministry that Isaiah had handed to him. 
And that's the ministry that we inherit also. And so how does this produce courage to walk down the lonely and impossible path of gospel proclamation? And I'm glad you asked because I have five responses, five responses to this vision of God from Isaiah 6. And these are gonna go fast. Number one, this vision from Isaiah chapter 6 is designed to produce worship and exhilaration, get this, with Jesus Christ. This vision is designed to cause you to be exhilarated by Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, well, how can that be? There is nothing about Christ even in the text to which I reply, hold on just a second, because get this, according to John chapter 12, who Isaiah saw here was not some generic, bland manifestation of who God is, but rather who he saw here on the throne was Jesus Christ himself. Isaiah, Jesus is on the throne in Isaiah 6. I'm not just assuming that. John 12, 41 says that, which means Christ is holy, holy, holy. That means that Jesus Christ is the infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, sovereign God who caused everything to exist, which means he is the most riveting reality in the universe. And literally, literally, the preoccupation of your lives is to discover the depths of who he is. Number two, this vision of Christ from Isaiah chapter six should produce in you what it produced in Isaiah. And what it produced in Isaiah was not merely repentance, but an existential meltdown. Look at verse five. Isaiah says, and I said, woe to me. Woe to me, for I am ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live in the midst of a people who are unclean of lips. He was the most godly man in the entire country. And this was his evaluation. Seeing God revealed and exposed the ugliness of his heart. His own comparative unworthiness. Seeing the glory of God was a spiritual wrecking ball that demolished all of his pride and presumption and his arrogance and his narcissism and brought him to to his knees in repentance. You see, the right response to the majesty of God is to say, woe is me for I am ruined. And I have to say this. If you happen to be his enemy this morning, if you have not actually truly embraced Jesus Christ as the highest treasure of your soul, then I am obligated to tell you that this God with all of his terrifying majesty and all of his dreadful sovereign power, I need to let you know that he is against you right now. He is against you. And you will not win. And yet, and yet, there is a safe place from the wrath of God. And it is God himself. You see, God is the only hiding place from his own wrath. If you see him as frightening and you try to run away and hide, you will find no place to hide. He will find you outside of God's love and care. There is only wrath. 
but there is a refuge from the wrath of God, namely the infinite God himself, the safest place from the wrath of God. The only safe place is God himself, who, get this, has made every single provision in Jesus Christ for you to be reconciled to God as the treasure of your soul. And so if you have not done so, I beg you, be reconciled to God through Christ. Number three, we're almost done. This vision of Christ should produce in you a longing to be recruited into gospel ministry. It should produce in you a longing to be recruited into gospel ministry. And I don't mean that like in a paid sense, like you're a missionary, but rather I mean that you spend your life making this God known regardless of what your occupation is. And I think it's really interesting because when Yahweh calls out in verse nine, who shall I send? Who's, who's going to go for us? Anyone? Anyone? Isaiah's looking around. He's the only one in the room. I'll go. I'll go. And what he actually says is, here am I, and it's a command, send me. Doesn't make any sense. Hostility, rejection, persecution, maybe even martyrdom. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. Because with a God like this, we know that his sovereign plan is unshakable. There's nothing more certain in the universe than what this God has ordained comes to pass. Number four, this vision of Christ from Isaiah 6 is designed to strategically give you courage in evangelism. You see, we have the superior argument because we have the superior God. Islam, the LGBTQ, the new atheists, and your non-Christian neighbors and coworkers and friends and maybe even family, they, they don't want you to speak. They will kill you or sue you or mock you or do whatever they've got to do to keep you silent. And yet, and, and we know that being silent is way more safe and comfortable for a while. But it is also profoundly less joyful. So if you want courage like a lion in gospel proclamation, you must be devastated by the king of glory. Number five, and I close with this. This vision of God from Isaiah 6 is designed to remind you that God does not exist merely to be explained or analyzed, but to be worshipped and adored. See, there is a God who will rise to meet the challenge of Islam in the world, 2.2 billion souls. There is a God who laughs at the pathetic little nuclear weapons of godless dictators. There is a God able to rise to meet the challenge of false teaching abundant in the world. There is a God able to conquer the depraved human heart and save his elect from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And it is the God of Isaiah chapter 6. I told you that this that you were warned this is a devastating vision and yet this is exactly what we need. Let's pray. Almighty God, it is hard to know what to say to you after a passage like that. Silence seems appropriate. Trembling seems right. And so, Lord, we declare that we are but mortals. We are finite. 
We are limited. We are temporal. We are created beings. We will die, but you live on. We had a birth date. We will have an end date. You are the Alpha and the Omega without beginning and without end. And what I ask, O oh Lord, for me and what I ask for these dear people is that you would help us, Lord. We languish, we languish, we struggle. This Christian life is not only difficult, it's impossible, and so we cry out to you for help. We cry out to you for great assistance from your word that you would cause us to view the world and the universe and every single individual moment in our lives through the lenses of Isaiah chapter 6. Help us to see who you are, that you are the God who works and moves and guides and governs everything that comes to pass. And it's in your matchless name that we pray. Amen.